The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hark, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, in case you missed it, there's a little bit of tension brewing on Wall Street. Many economists and macro-oriented investors are bracing for a recession in 2023. And with that would likely come a nasty drop in corporate profits. But Analysts who study individual companies haven't reduced their profit estimates enough yet to signal an earnings recession is on the way. So what exactly is up with this disconnect between the top-down and the bottom-up views of the market? And what does it mean for your investments in 2023? We'll get into it with one of Wall Street's best-known strategists. But first, Valdana, I got to tell you, I'm freaking out about something. About what? You're freaking out about a lot of stuff. I'm usually. freaking out about something. Yeah. What is it? What do you cook your cauliflower with? What type of stove do you have? Oh my God, this is a sore subject for me. Our gas is out in our building, your so gas, I'm not cooking anything not, right now. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Why? Get, these gas stoves are killing us all. Do you realize this? There's this. Big, oh, they're banning them, they're, right? They're going to ban them all. No more. I, I'm very. Alarmed by that this. news came out the same day that they turned my gas off. Well, in in my entire building. So you're just so I'm not. Co- I'm just not going to eat. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm just not going to eat for the next like three months probably. <laughs> I I think this is a scheme by DoorDash. I think it, uh, they want you to go long door, yeah. DoorDash. What do you think? We should check how much they're paying lobbyists <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to kill <laughs> gas ovens. All right. Well, maybe our guest has some thoughts on DoorDash. And, she and, she and might. She might all. not. <laughs> <laughs> probably I, not. I'll, I'll 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 spoil it. Probably not. But, but who doesn't like delivery? Everybody likes uh, delivery, true. including our guests. Probably. I want to bring in Savita Sabramanian. She's the head of U.S. Equity Strategy at Bank of America. Savita, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Vildana. And I do love delivery. <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I wish my gas stove was out so that I had a good excuse not to cook. <laughs> it is a very good excuse to get takeout. I always thought my gas stove was going to kill me because the kids always leave the pizza box on top of it. And I'm afraid the dog's going to sniff the pizza and go. Yeah. And turn your oven on. Yeah. These are some crazy thoughts. Little did I know. It won't happen. It won't happen. (laughs) Um, But Savita, so so Mike mentioned in the introduction, you're one of our best known strategies on Wall Street. And so I wanted maybe to just start out having you tell us about your year end price target for the S&P 500. And I believe that you guys also have different variables and and scenes playing out for the year. Maybe you can talk about those as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's um so so our official year end target, you know, it's it's kind of a point in time forecast where we we think the market will close around 4,000, the S&P 500, which is really limited upside from here. Um, but we think there's a lot of moves within the year. So let's talk about a range. I think our bull case 
like if everything goes right, we think the market could go as high as 4,600, which would be a, a, a pretty great year. And then our bear case and what we think is a reasonable floor for the market is 3,000, which would be a, quite a big drop from here. So, you know, I think our views are in 2023, it, it might be a less than stellar year for the index, for the market index. But we think there are going to be a lot of great opportunities within the S&P 500. And, you know, I think that's where we're really focused with uh, with our views is what sectors, what themes, you know, what areas within the S&P 500 can actually do pretty well this year, you know, amidst a, a backdrop of, of relatively muted returns for the overall market. I want to get into those themes and sectors, Savita, but I, like I said in the introduction, I'm fascinated by this notion that pretty much everyone assumes all these earnings estimates from the analysts right now are wrong. You know, all the top-down view of the market is that, what are they thinking? Uh, these estimates have to be cut. What do you think explains that? I mean, are, are analysts just sort of waiting for the companies themselves to lower guidance? You know, is, is, is this four, fourth quarter reporting season really going to pull that out uh, from all the conference calls? Uh, you know, how, how do you see this unfolding? I think you're right. I think that analysts are in sort of wait and see mode, and maybe even companies are in wait and see mode, because, you know, the real positive surprise over the last few years is that despite rampant inflation, cost pressure, wage pressure, you know, everything going up to, you know, pretty high levels in terms of, you know, kind of margin pressure, companies have managed to navigate this by either, you know, pricing products more aggressively or by, uh, you know, cutting costs. And I think on top of that, we're seeing corporates very nimble in terms of cutting costs. A lot of the headlines recently have been around mega cap tech companies, you know, uh, kind of reducing their compensation cost structure by by layoffs, you know, not necessarily great for the economy, but good for their bottom line. So so I think that analysts and, you know, and corporates are, are probably uh, a little less convicted in terms of margins and cost pressure and pricing power going forward. Our view is that we are likely to see some downward revisions. And, you know, our forecast for profits growth for 2023 is, you know, 200 bucks for the S&P 500. And that would mean about a 10% decline in earnings uh, peak to trough. Now, you know, I think that makes sense to us amidst uh, forecasts for a recession. This is, you know, one of the most widely telegraphed recessions of, of all time. I think we're all just sitting here bracing ourselves for it. Um, a 10% drop in earnings would actually be half of the typical recessionary corporate earnings drop. So, so we think that we are going to see those estimates come down, and it's likely to happen after companies guide more aggressively lower around 2023 earnings. Uh, but, you know, I think where we're going to see pressures are in companies with more labor intensity, like services companies, uh, companies where you're really seeing cost pressure remain high. Those are the areas where we think that we're going to see some downward guides on, on margins. And Savita, I want to ask you about what specifically you'll be looking for this earnings season. And I think you guys have you guys have really great um, daily and weekly research. I remember from past earnings seasons that you have 
maybe it's sort of like an AI-driven model or something along those lines where you sift through all the earnings reports and you look for keywords and some of the things that are mentioned the most number of times. So if we're behind, if we have peak inflation behind us, um, what will you be looking for? What keywords, what trends and, and, and um, will you be sort of cluing into as these earnings reports roll out? Yeah, thanks for that question, and thanks for reading our research. Um, I always do, read it. <laughs> we do a lot of uh, kind of text analysis, and you know, some of the things that we've been able to unearth um, during different periods are, you know, kind of inventory pressures, um, demand destruction, um, you know, inability to price. So this quarter, what we are laser focused on are a couple of things, as I mentioned. We want to hear more from companies around whether the tightness in the labor market is alleviating, because that has been the theme for the last, you know, almost eight quarters now is just the inability of companies to source labor unless they dramatically increase prices, especially at the lower income end. Um, We're also listening for more news around layoffs in, in services sectors. So, you know, so far, we've really heard it only from, you know, mega cap tech companies, We're waiting to see whether that spreads to a broader array of companies. Um, We're also listening for thoughts around, you know, kind of this inventory mismatch. So we've seen some of the supply chain frictions alleviate. And now we're wondering how much inventory companies have to work off. And that could be another drag on um, on pricing power, demand, earnings, pressure, etc. We're all, you know, I think some of the other factors that we're paying attention to from a from an earnings per share perspective are buybacks. So, you know, the last five years, we've seen buybacks contribute about 10 percentage points of S&P profits growth. That's a huge amount. And it's really unusual uh, versus prior cycles. So if that buyback trend also decelerates, and there are good reasons to believe it does. I mean, the government is now taxing corporate buybacks. You know, companies might be more likely to hold cash rather than spend it on buybacks if we are worried about a downturn. So that's another trend we're listening for. Um, and our view is, again, per share earnings growth has been really juiced up over the last five plus years by just, um, you know, rampant buyback activity. And if that cools, that will be another source of uh, potential risk to to earnings going forward. You know, Savita, you mentioned some of the layoffs uh, among the big tech companies. I think a lot of people are bracing for perhaps a wave of layoffs in the financial sector, you know, which I'm assuming a a lot of our listeners are are employed in. Are layoffs automatically good news for the share price this year? Just to be blunt and and say it out front, if if I see a headline, such and such is cutting X percent, is that automatically good news for the stock price or is is there more nuance, do you think? Well, you know, it's good news in that the company is being nimble and addressing this issue of, you know, bloated uh, compensation costs and, and maybe, you know, rationalizing capacity. But I do think that the the signal it's giving us is that this company is in workout mode. So, yes, they're being nimble. They're addressing these issues. But first of all, it means that they, you know, sort of misallocated capital um, in 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 a better period of time. And second of all, it means that from an economic perspective, especially I think in this heading into this recession, what could be different this time is that a lot of the layoffs are really happening at the higher income end or the skilled labor end. And what that means is that, you know, typically in a recession, 
luxury goods are more defensive than lower uh, lower price point products. But in this recession, maybe luxury isn't as defensive because a lot of the layoffs are really much more acute at that kind of skilled uh, services and tech level. Um, so those are some of the things that we're watching. From a company perspective, for the most part, we've found that investors have lauded the news around layoffs. Um, you know, as a source of, of uh, alleviation of margin pressure. But I think that, you know, whether or not that's enough to offset the also deteriorating demand is the big question. So top line becomes important. Yes, companies are ve being very nimble at managing costs, but they're doing this because they're seeing less demand and less ability to, um, you know, continue operations with their current uh, labor setup. So that that bodes ill for, you know, demand in uh, in terms of, of uh, you know, kind of top line growth. When we look at tech companies, one of the things that worries us, and we're underweight information technology as well as communication services. And one of the things that worries us is that, you know, kind of similar to Y2K back in 2000, we've seen this massive pull forward of demand for tech during COVID, work from home, um, you know, kind of, you know, all of the, the telecommuting that we've done. And so what we're seeing now is potentially a hit to CapEx on software of companies that already sort of, you know, really address their software spend over the last uh, couple of years. So I think that's what we're worried about for tech companies is, you know, maybe what they're doing is is great in terms of managing costs, but how much of their demand is really cyclical rather than as sticky as what everybody was forecasting, you know, in the in prior years. And we mentioned recession a couple of times now and how this is one of the most well-telegraphed recessions <laughs> ever. <laughs> but you actually say that this is not your mom and dad's recession. So I'm wondering what you are expecting and how you might characterize it. I, I will say, Vildana, that was good news when I read that because yeah, my why? dad was born right at the beginning of the Great Depression. Oh, so, so it's for, for yes, me, this is, for good. You, this this is, is good especially news. good news. <laughs> That's why you could, it, throughout his life, you could put like 10 pounds of spaghetti on his plate. He'd eat every yeah, piece of spaghetti because yeah. he- I would too, though. Yeah, he <laughs> <laughs> Spaghetti's good. Exactly right. I mean, I think that when we think about our parents and, you know, prior generations, recessions looked really different. And I think, I mean, obviously the depression was, was one of the most acute recessions we've ever seen. I think even 2008, when, when you think about kind of the drama that took place within corporate America, within consumers, homeowners, it was really broad spread. It was driven by this, you know, massive credit cycle. And I think the good news is that today, corporates and consumers actually look pretty well capitalized, at least for the time being. And maybe that's just a function of really low interest rates. But I think what corporates learned in 2008 was that leverage is evil. <laughs> and they have now locked in relatively long dated fixed rate obligations on the on the debt side like to me the most encouraging number is if you compare today's average maturity of debt on S&P balance sheets to that in 2008 
To date, debt terms out at about, on average, 11 years. Back in 08, it was more like seven years. So we've seen this this longer duration uh, exposure to to fixed rate debt, which I think is good news because that means that higher interest rates won't hurt these companies overnight and they have time to navigate that, that process. Consumers similarly are, well, they got a big bolus of cash from the government in 2020, 2021. So, you know, balance sheets of consumers and corporates look pretty great. The government is holding the bag when it comes to debt. So if you look at deficits, if you look at Fed balance sheets, I think what's different today is that the Fed has never had this type of an asset base. We've seen trillions of dollars of you know, kind of bond purchases occur over the last 10 plus years, which have been great for risk assets, but not, you know, how does the Fed navigate unwinding all of that debt? I think that's the trillion dollar question because <laughs> we've never seen this movie before. And and that's yeah. what we're, we're a little more worried about the public sector than the private sector in this recession. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I think what blows my mind the most is, you know, we are all expecting this recession. And then yet you write in your quant models, the most attractive sector is financials, which, uh, you know, would not be what you would expect. Yes. <laughs> ahead of, you know, at least these big recessions that, you know, 2008, uh, 1929, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I guess to some degree, that's just a testament to the effectiveness of the of the reforms of 2008 and how what a different economic environment it is with a high inflation and everything. But walk us through what makes financial stick out in your quant models uh, to be so attractive. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question because I think when you think about what to own in a recession, financials would probably be the last sector you'd want to own. <laughs> and it's because we all think about 2008, where that was the point of maximum pain. Today, I think the good news is that financials companies are not necessarily holding the credit risk. They haven't really been allowed to lend to low quality consumers. They've been, you know, kind of regulated by the government, um, forced to arguably overcapitalize balance sheets. Or, you know, today, if you look at a chart of leverage for financials, we're at, you know, a sixth of where we were in terms of leverage risk relative to 2008. And we've never seen this type of a monstrous drop in leverage going back to, you know, the 1930s. So I think where the lending risk resides is not necessarily in U.S. large cap banks or financial companies. It's really outside of the financial sector. You know, you've seen a lot of of lending through private equity, venture capital, um, companies that have burgeoned in an environment of zero interest rates, zero hurdle rates, you know, kind of free capital. And I think that's where we are more worried about this unwind of public sector debt. So, yeah. So, like I said, it's not your mom and dad's recession in that the credit cycle you know, we are seeing credit conditions tighten, but it's not necessarily as threatening 
to banks, given that they've been regulated to deal with these types of credit credit cycles um, from lessons that we learned in 08. Uh, you know, I think financials is also this sort of closet, high quality sector. And it feels weird for me to say this, having lived through the financial crisis, but when you look at the earnings variability of financial companies relative to the market, you know, tech is a far more cyclical sector today than financials is. Financial companies actually have lower earnings volatility than the S&P 500, which is kind of shocking, right? I mean, it's it's almost like financials has morphed into the regulated utilities sector because of, you know, the fact that these companies have been so scrutinized and have been so disciplined about capital cushions. Savita, I, I also want to ask you about um, this point that you make about how bonds over stocks is now the consensus for at least the first half. But then you also add, um, given drops in equity sentiment and positioning, one of the biggest risks today might be that of being underinvested in stocks. So how are you thinking about this? Because we heard, we've also been hearing from people, I think even Gunlock said it earlier this week as part of his uh, quarterly webcast, that... It, People should be positioning 60% in bonds and 40% in stocks. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Look, I mean, I think that bonds did horrifically last year. So one could argue that there is some, you know, kind of upside risk to, to fixed income. From a yield perspective, bonds now offer much more competitive income than, than you know, the dividend yield on the S&P 500. So a lot of things have changed over the last 12 months. But... I think what worries me is that when you think about bonds, the biggest demand for 10-year treasuries over the last few decades has been from the Fed buying bonds through quantitative easing and from China buying U.S. treasuries. And both of those big sources of demand have left the building. So I think that that's something we need to think about is quantitative tightening is happening real time. I mean, it started last year and basically our, our rates team thinks that quantitative tightening as projected will basically remove about, you know, a trillion plus dollars of demand for treasuries over the next 12 months. That's a lot of money. And we don't know who is going to step in and fill that void. So our view is, okay, yeah, bonds are offering a higher yield than they were last year. So from an income perspective, they do look on the margin more attractive than a lower dividend yielding equity. But if rates continue to rise and if that demand for bonds is continuing to wane rather than wax, that's where I worry about the upside risk to interest rates and thus downside risk from a price perspective to bonds. I think also what's shocking to me is that over the last 12 months, all of the equity bulls have become bond bulls. And the most one of the most consensus themes that we hear is, you know, buy bonds in a recession and then move into equities in the recovery. Our view is this, like I said before, this might be a very different recession where bonds don't necessarily hold up as well. And the reason is that, you know, the, the twin deficits, the, the fact that the public sector is holding the leverage. So our view is, okay, sure, dividends are lower, but 
There are still a bunch of stocks in the S&P 500 that offer competitive yields with bonds and with the fixed income markets. And the good news is that equities can grow their earnings if inflation remains sticky and high. So buy companies that have you know, reasonable dividend yields and also the ability to navigate an inflationary environment or rising interest rate environment and continue to grow those dividends and remain competitive with fixed income. So I still think that the argument for holding equities in a rising interest rate environment remains intact. Companies have the ability to grow earnings, whereas fixed income is exactly that, fixed income. You can't grow your earnings in an environment of rising interest rates. And with you know equity income sort of being a, a much bigger potential source of return, I think, than it, than it has been in the last decade or so, to simplify it to sort of the the most simplest terms, is it like by the aristocrats index type of thing? Do you think, or, yes, or that, that type of company? That type of company, exactly. These boring kind of steady eddy companies. In fact, I my favorite screen, and I tell my parents about this. I tell my friends about this. But my favorite quantitative screen is like the easiest thing to do. So you take the Russell one thousand stocks, like the one thousand largest companies in the U.S. equity market. Take the largest 1,000 stocks in the U.S. equity market. You look for the dividend yield. You rank all these companies by dividend yield. And then instead of buying the highest dividend quintile, you buy quintile two. (laughs) It's that easy. (laughs) So just buy quintile two of the Russell 1000 by dividend yield. And what that does is it gives you kind of competitive yields with the market. So you're buying companies with higher dividend yields than the overall market. But you're also screening out companies that are becoming very high dividend yielders because their prices are falling and they're about to cut their dividends because that is anathema. And especially during a recession, that's where a lot of these high dividend yielding companies end up in purgatory for cutting their dividends. And then you also basically clip that coupon and you avoid companies that are growing too expensive when their dividend yield drops uh, you know, below a certain threshold. So that's where I think the real action is going to be from a, from a total return perspective. And one of the things that we found is that quintile two by dividend yield has outperformed every other quintile of, of the market and has offered a much lower probability of losing money than other areas within that dividend spectrum. So similar to the aristocrats, it's really the idea of Don't stretch for yield, but look for safe and growing dividend yield. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I wanted to ask about your process and say I, I put you and on. Now a, we know it. Uh, now we know our favorite screen. Your That's a good sauce, one. In fact, yeah. I have a headline in my, my head already. About That's that. right. The secret sauce. <laughs> the secret sauce. But I'm curious, you know, since you and your team are so well followed, so respected and influential uh, on Wall Street, 
I'd love to know just kind of the basics of your process. Say I were to take you and put you on a desert island for a year and then bring you back and put you in front of a computer. What, what would be the first sort of things you would you would look at? Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, it's always changing. So uh, that's the tricky part. You know, for the last 10 years, one of the things that we've been forced to pay attention to is how much the Fed and stimulus have juiced up the market. So I think having a, you know, a whole slew of macro charts showing inflation trends, valuation trends, you know, kind of um, leverage you know, kind of the big picture story for what's been happening in the world. So if in 12 months we come back and we see that the Fed has successfully unwound all of the quantitative easing that, that we enjoyed, we'll feel a lot better about the market because we, we're, we're past that point of the unknown. Um, I think also, you know, what we try to do is look at, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, what you want to do is buy the cheapest stocks in the market. Well, some of the things we try to do is we test those theories. And in many cases, they hold true. But in many cases, they are patently false. So I think, you know, a lot of our work um, would be centered around, okay, this seems like it's a it's a thesis that makes sense, but let's test it. Let's see how those stocks that had, you know, the lowest valuations, the highest free cash flow yield, all these different things that investors care about. Let's see how they actually did in the real world. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that human behavior drives a lot of asset class rotation. And this is sort of similar to the bonds versus stocks argument. So, you know, when you start to see if, you know, if I come back in a year and everybody hates bonds and loves stocks again, that's going to change my tune around, you know, whether you want to be in stocks or bonds. So I think that also paying attention to sentiment, positioning, crowding, themes that are just well vaunted and everybody's expecting something to happen. Those are also really important to pay attention to because, you know, while we learn in finance classes that it's all about earnings growth and terminal rates and, you know, all the numbers, in reality, there's a huge amount of psychology involved in what works in a, in a market cycle. So I think that's also really important to pay attention to. Basically, just as much data as I could get my hands on, I think, would be the answer to your desert island question. <laughs> and, and memes, of course. Don't forget yes. the memes. Yeah, don't forget me. Twitter. The, Twitter. the memes The meme stocks are back in action, Bed Bath & Beyond. Did you see that? That's right. Yeah. I mean, we don't pay as much attention to that because I feel like the alpha there is so short-term, so unpredictable that it's almost easier yeah. to fade that and wait for it to be behind you. There's some good memes about Bed Bath & Beyond going around now. Because apparently they use foam to to make their towels look so pristine in the stores. Really? So now there's pictures of it all over the all over Twitter at least, wow. which I need to spend less time on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, one one more very cool point from um, one of your your notes. You said the market is hoping for a Fed pivot, but it really shouldn't. A Fed easing cycle amid tightening credit conditions, i.e., recession, has been the worst backdrop for stocks. And I feel like nobody. You're like the first person I've heard say this. Yeah, I mean, I think what what a Fed pivot would suggest is that the Fed is worried. <laughs> and, you know, I think basically what we found is that when you're in that environment where the Fed has been tightening, credit conditions have been tightening, and the Fed feels as though their tightening has actually worked, 
it's sort of too late and the damage is done within markets. And until credit conditions actually ease, you don't want to be involved in equities. So our view is right now what's happening is the Fed is tightening and credit conditions are tightening. What would be a better outcome is if credit conditions actually eased in the next 12 months. And we don't think that's going to happen. We think the Fed is going to continue to tighten to try to cool this white hot economy, super high inflation, and they will, it, like they have in every other cycle, probably go too far, at which point you really don't want to be in equities. You're, you're really in that demand destruction recession mode, which is a period of time where equities generally do the most poorly. So I think that, you know, what, what we're seeing right now is sort of the Fed is doing what they, they probably need to do. They're trying to cool inflation. They're trying to unwind a lot of the benefits that we enjoyed over the last 10 years. And them stopping prematurely wouldn't necessarily be a great sign. It would be a sign that, you know, we're really in, in a, a, a demand slowdown. And that would be negative for earnings. That would be negative for cyclicals. That would be negative for the economy et cetera, et cetera. And that's you know, precisely when you don't want to own cyclical equities. Savita Subramanian, it's so great to catch up with you and, and hear your take on the markets. We can't let you go just yet, though. We have a little tradition here on the podcast. Valdana, what's it called? Craziest thing. I always get it wrong. Weirdest thing. How many times do we have we done this? We I always call it, it weirdest, right? The and crazy, it's craziest the craziest thing. thing. We can call it weirdest if you want. I <laughs> always get it wrong. I'm sorry. I will literally never learn. I will go first. Mine is actually very good. All right, let's hear it. Okay, it's super fun. Okay. I I picked it with you in mind. Oh boy. There's an India based company called Dream Eleven. It runs a fantasy sports platform. And now their employees have to pay a fine of $1,200 if they contact a colleague while the colleague is on a day off. <laughs> really? I yes. like that. I like Isn't that Isn't that role. crazy? Like, I guess this company has like a policy where workers have to take at least a week off annually. And so if somebody emails you, they have to pay this huge fine. I, why did you think of me on that? Because you love to email me when I'm on <laughs> when I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> but it's usually about the Buffalo Bills or something. It's not, yeah, or yeah. about the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough. How about you, Savita? Have you seen anything crazy recently? Here's what I think is crazy. Feels like every investor is laser focused on what the Fed is doing with the short end, with you know Fed funds rates, how much they're tightening on the short end. But the truth is, it doesn't actually matter that much. The long end is much more important, and nobody is talking about quantitative tightening. That, to me, is the craziest thing in the market, is that we are all focused on the exact wrong part of the curve. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Well, I mean, is there a potential for them to ease up on quantitative tightening before cutting rates, you think? And, and how would that be perceived? Well, I think that that's what everybody is hoping for, but I don't yeah. necessarily know if that happens. If they really want to control inflation, they need to tighten on both ends. So, I mean, I just feel like this is a market cycle where, well, the oh, here's the other crazy thing. So if you think about the average portfolio manager, the average age of a portfolio manager in the United States is about 40. I think it's like 43 years old. Ah, oh, make me feel old. No, me too. <laughs> I am consistently Over the, hell. the oldest person in the room in Fiat uh. And 43 years old. So think about it. This has been 
a, a cohort of individuals who have worked during a period where all you needed to do was buy the stocks that went up. Momentum was the best stock selection factor for the last you know, couple of decades here. So that's what portfolio managers and professional investors have been sort of trained to do on this almost in this Pavlovian process. And you know, valuation hasn't mattered for a very long time up until last the last couple of years. So I think that's another very interesting part of this uh, environment. Yeah, definitely. On the flip side, though, they also grew up with supercomputers and, you know, we didn't even know what quant and factor investing was back in the day. So, you know, there there maybe there's an edge there, too, to the youth and the, the technocratic nature of it. That the is youth. very true. The youth, the youth the those youths. youthful 43. The youths. <laughs> those young whippersnappers. All right, that's pretty good. All right, Savita, my crazy thing I had you in mind, Envaldana, uh-huh. because I'm going to pit the two of you against each other Perfect. in our game show, The Price is Precise. The Price is Precise. Not The Price is Right, Savita. Yeah, yes. Completely different. So different. Comple- completely different. But Savita, I know you look at a million different points of data. One thing I don't ever hear anyone talking about is actually the share prices of different companies. You'd never mm-hmm. hear any analysis for good reason. What, what's it really matter? Or does it? I don't know. So the question is, what's the highest stock price in the S&P? I'm not talking about evaluation. I'm not talking about- It's Berkshire Hathaway. It's not, uh, it's not Berkshire Hathaway. What? They used to, well, remember, they were excluded from the S&P for a long no, time I don't be- before they did a, the split to- uh, it's not Berkshire Hathaway? It's, it is not Berkshire Hathaway. The highest price stock in the S&P 500? Just share price, not price to book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. P. Right. E. Just share price. Just for, watch her, Voldana. Make sure she doesn't pull up her. Oh, she's going to know. I'm, not looking, I'm looking straight at the camera. <laughs> I mean, I would have to say it's like one of the mega cap tech companies that have just never, that haven't split. But I feel like all of them have split. Um that's true. Amazon I also remember it's a crazy thing because you're probably not going to get it. It's a right. company we never hear much about. Is it one of those like? I'll uh, give you. You're right. It. I don't think it's ever done a split. It did a reverse one for thirty split way back in 1993. No splits since. Then. I bet it's one of those like research companies. What's the one? They just like have like public profiles and do consulting oh. for different public companies. Oh, like... Uh, oh, shoot. Uh, I'll remember it. All right. Wild guess just at the price. You don't have to name the company. $1,800. $1,800. Savita, what do you think? 3000 3000 Savita's a little bit closer. $4,828 per share. Down from a peak, by the way, of $5,959 in December 2021. You'll never in a million years guess the company. NVR Inc., the home what? builder trades for almost $5,000 a share. I don't even know this company. So you think about that, uh, or a round lot of, uh, you know, of NVR is going to cost you half a million dollars, basically. Isn't it silly not to split that, Savita? Like, yes. isn't there a li- liquidity premium that you're missing out on and everything? I mean, absolutely. That is a wild. <laughs> How many shares are outstanding? Like I don't know. I think it's like a fifteen billion dollar ish market cap. So uh wow. I don't know. Interesting. I um, never would have guessed it. I never and that's why I think it's the craziest thing I saw this week. That 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 is wild. Um I need but now I'm so bothered by not having 
not being able to remember the other company I was thinking of because I didn't really even guess one. So. <laughs> <laughs> NVR. Wow. NVR. Okay. That's wild. Is the craziest thing I saw this week. The wildest thing I saw. But I'm glad you didn't guess it, actually. I was, I was thinking... Savita's going to get this, but I'm glad you did. Oh, no, no. I'm like, I'm more, I don't, I don't, I'm a, I'm not a stock jock. I'm more of like a macro fat right. person. So, yeah. Right. That, I was I, flummoxed by that one. That is a good I, question. That's good. I find it that's silly that want. a company would let their stock price trade that high, but. It's really. Maybe they're proud of it. Yeah. yeah could be. Exactly. <laughs> could be. I mean, we're, we're all talking about it, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Savita, so great to catch up with you. Uh, Really fascinating conversation. I hope we can have you back someday. Likewise. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you for joining us. What Goes Up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Down has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.